Welcome to Not Enough Champagne, a podcast in suspended animation. My name's Corey Hazelhurst and my partner in propaganda is Steve Haynes. Hi, Corey. This is our fifth annual review of British politics. It's the first ever time it's just Steve and me. I suppose in any other year, if we'd have predicted that in 2020, Boris Johnson would be Prime Minister and would be hurtling towards a no-deal Brexit and he'd be about to cancel Christmas and close pubs, we'd have assumed this was a sick joke. But as you will know, listeners, this is what our life has been reduced to. doesn't it specifically very british politics in 2020 that we are recording this on saturday afternoon this is mid-december usually not much news happens in december everyone has taken a break from now until the new year except not only uh, as i say, do we have the aforementioned brexit deal to, to sort out that we've no idea about but also we're recording this before a government a, a, a supposed government press release uh, a press conference that is apparently going to change Christmas plans for millions of people that is being briefed on Twitter, but we don't know anything about. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like a perfect uh, summation of the government's uh, uh, press strategy and uh, communication strategy for the the entirety of uh, this government's existence, isn't it? Bumbling along from one crisis to the next whilst leaking the details ahead of time and not providing any actual information to people that need it. If it was just bumbling, I wouldn't mind as much but this isn't bumbling. This is after weeks of saying, no, we're going to have Christmas. Literally three days ago, Boris Johnson mm. with a question, wasn't forensic, but it was a genuine question by Keir Starmer on the issue of Christmas, to which Johnson then says, is the honourable member threatening to cancel Christmas? Literally three days ago. And now we are getting stuff leaked up to journalists that's going out on Twitter before the press conference. And it's weird because I assumed that the people who were leaking random stuff to journalists before it goes out to parliament or actually gets a proper announcement, I assumed that was Dominic Cummings and Lee Kane. But it can't be them, presumably, because they've gone. So who the hell is doing it? It's got to be um, an actual for lack of a better term, policy of the government to do this sort of thing. It looks like it's just how the government operates and that they just don't know how to do operate in any other way, which is damning in so many ways. But it just goes to the heart of why they have so much problem with kind of effective communication because they're not actually focused on communicating effectively. Maybe it's the the idea is by leaking in advance, they can get a uh, an instant kind of read and on the reaction online. I, I don't know if that's what they're doing, but that's about the only thing I can think of as to why they'd be approaching their comms in this way now. If it is what they're doing, then it's a bloody stupid thing to do because it's not like there's a thought out strategy behind it. It's not like you've got a carefully crafted policy announcement where you as a minister, Steve, might have a policy that then you say, okay, Corey as a comms guy, you need to brief the press about this. You need to make sure we've got a junior minister on the Today programme. We need to make sure that we've got someone else on Good Morning Britain. We need to make sure that someone else is talking to Laura Koonsberg who's going to talk about it on the six o'clock news. That in that sense, the kind of the brief before you have an announcement, 
makes sense but this doesn't seem to be what's happening because as you say everything is so chaotic everything is also over the place and you can see it perfectly actually with how the government is treating schools we had announcements and this isn't the first time this has happened we had um a level nonsense when the government said they wouldn't u-turn then did u-turn we had guidance being issued to schools literally days before they were meant to return in september and schools on the last day of term were getting guidance about how they were going to be mass testing pupils in january and also talking about how they might try and stagger school openings in january literally days after Gavin Williamson was trying to sue Greenwich Council for closing kids uh, for closing schools a week early, there's just no coherence. Everything is so all over the place, and none of it makes sense as any form of coherent whole. I think you can look at basically any department at the moment, and you'll find that there's no coherent approach to to, to anything because coherency of of, of kind of like action in when you're dealing with organizations such as the British government you need coherent leadership to be able to have coherent action and it is quite clear that there is no coherent leadership within the, uh, the within the top of this this administration because Boris Johnson doesn't have a clue what he wants to do Boris Johnson doesn't have a clue how to handle situations that aren't just him making jokes and uh, making light of situations. Boris Johnson doesn't know how to deliver bad news, so which means he's just got his head down in in, in the sand, um, pr- try, trying to hope and pretend that everything is, uh, is is jolly good. When in reality, what's actually needed is a, a grown up in the room to actually be a leader and start saying, "Okay, we need to do this, 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 and this. These are the aims. These are the objectives." How do we meet them? Without that guiding hand of the Prime Minister there, Gavin Williamson is just free to go bugger off and do whatever he wants. Yeah, I mean, if we think about the start of 2020, if it's possible to think that far ago, we gave the Conservatives three resolutions to focus on, and the first one of those was to get an agenda. It's been quite difficult to do that, admittedly, because coronavirus has taken up a lot of government time. Brexit also has a lot of that, though, is self-inflicted, and we'll talk about that in a second. Uh, But I think it has also been hampered by that woefully terrible communication strategy that we've talked about. And also the elephant in the room, which is an incredibly weak cabinet. And I think Williamson in particular is a shining example of that, is someone who was appointed essentially because he signed up to a no-deal Brexit and anyone who wouldn't sign up to a no-deal Brexit left the cabinet. Even the more relatively competent people like Jeremy Hunt are not in cabinet because of that. Williamson indeed was put into education because it was thought that the government wasn't going to be doing much in education. And so you've got a classic example of the wrong minister in the wrong place at the wrong time. Sorry, this is the first September since 2012 where I didn't spend my working time in a, in a school. I think it's hard for people who don't work in schools or who know people who work in schools to realise just how gruelling the autumn term is. 40-odd percent of the school year takes place in the autumn term my rule of thumb is always if you have a half term that is longer than six weeks any that week seven week eight it's just really really hard the teachers are tired and they are ratty the kids are tired they are ratty when you consider that usually the autumn term would be a seven or eight week half term there may be an eight even a nine week half term as well on top of that back to back when days are getting shorter it's darker 
when you pile on the fact that so much disruption will have happened to pupils and teachers because of COVID and lots of pupils having to isolate at home, which affects their structure, which means um, it's harder for them when they get back at school and you think the amount of cover that teachers have had to run around organising. And then the final day of term, when you're finally thinking you can check out and ha have that downtime, which when you're a teacher is so necessary, when you're a school leader as well, it's so necessary. You know, you've been going at 120 miles an hour since March to dump a load more things on your to-do list for January, which you have to spend Christmas preparing for, is obscene. And in a way, actually, I think it's, I think it's worse than Michael Gove when he was Education Secretary, because Gove and Cummings, I get the impression that their war on teachers was ideological. They had a contempt for the blob as they saw it. They had very particular ideas about education that they wanted to ram home in no matter what any other independent academic or teacher or experts said. Whereas with Williamson, it just feels like there is just this incompetence mixed with indifference. Yeah, I mean, it's quite clear that Gavin Williamson doesn't care about the role, probably just viewing it as a launch pad in, from, from his perspective to become prime minister and the leader of the Conservative Party, or at least achieve one of the great offices of state. He's going to run. He's going to How run. have you made me feel any more worse than I could already have felt? That is quite... <laughs> But I, I think the core point, really, that, that that you brought up there was there is a lack of competence in this cabinet um, that goes right up to the to the prime minister. What we have with uh, Johnson's cabinet are, as you say, the people who, in many ways, are the dregs of the Conservative Party at the moment because they're the, they're just the ones who happen to have just about enough experience that they could be made uh, a cabinet uh, a member of the cabinet but they have to be signed up ideologically to, to a, a specific kind of Brexit, no deal Brexit, and be all right with that. It's a symptom of the fact that we are, this is the fourth term of a Conservative government. To quote the thick of it again, we're sort of in season 10 of the big breakfast territory. Obviously, the, the departure of Dominic Cummings is something that defined this year, defined this government, and especially Barnard Castle will define Johnson's administration. And I think, as you say, Johnson doesn't really have a fixed ideology, doesn't really have a fixed idea of what he wants to do. Cummings gave him that. Cummings is the one who gave him a strategy to win a general election and get Brexit through, or at least a withdrawal agreement through. Cummings is the person who had an idea for what he wanted to do doing government, even though, as we've said several times, could never actually achieve. Then when you look at the kind of things that we thought would be part of the government's agenda this year, things like increasing infrastructure spending, things like the levelling up agenda, things like the Green Industrial Revolution. Well, I mean, they've talked about them and Johnson's made speeches on them. Michael Gove might even have made the, right, the right speech on them. But actually, the policy behind them is very limited. It's not backed up with enough funding. So it's not really clear that any of those issues are going to be enacted on at all. Being entirely honest and fair... Any government that uh, of any stripe would probably be floundering a little bit as a result of the cat pandemic. Just, 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 just a touch. Even you know, uh, any Labour government would have probably probably suffered in in some way from it. But that said, there should be an ability to 
to continue to do all of these things because like, i think we've said on previously like okay we want to talk about infrastructure and leveling up well great now's the perfect time to borrow because you know, interest rates are so low so we can do that now if they have a desire to actually do this they don't have a plan for how they can actually manage it and my, my suspicion is they don't actually even have a desire really to do it beyond oh this will help us win the next general election rather than this is what we need to do to help Britain grow or solve this policy problem or, or whatever it might be which means they just sit there flounder and bounce from one crisis to one crisis to the next without any actual coherent thought going into what's actually happening. I think Johnson quite likes the idea of infrastructure projects just because it's a legacy. You know, a bit yeah. like there wasn't the Garden Bridge or something in London. Like you just want a big thing that you can open and cut the ribbon and stick your name on it and means that you have achieved immortality. Maybe I'm doing him a disservice, but at the moment it doesn't feel like it given he's but I don't feel that there's a, a sort of any more moral underpinning behind it, really. I think you're right. I think for, for Johnson, it's because he likes that moment of we have delivered something and I can give good news. That's that's all he really wants to do is give good news. That's a, that's a, that's a good thing, actually. I reckon Boris Johnson, what he really wants is just what every single um, president in the US gets, which is like a library. Every... US president gets a presidential library. So, and I think that's the sort of thing he wants. I, I have held this position. People will know my name. Here is the monument to my to my success. Well, and this is actually what we, a few people have said. It's, you want to go from having to being prime minister, having had all the trappings of being prime minister, have all the ceremonial stuff, but not any of the actual governing things about being prime minister. Boris Johnson basically wants to be a king. So the second resolution, um, keeping Brexit off the front pages... It's getting more dicey as we uh, head further down 2020, as we head nearer to the deadline for a deal, which was last Sunday. And then before that, I think was last Thursday. And then before that, I think was the following Tuesday. And then before that was the following Wednesday. And then before that was the following Friday. And before that was June. Um, and I mean, let's face it, the government have completely balls this up, completely and utterly. Again, one of the things that came out in the, in the quiz, which... Uh, spoiler alert for the quiz that we're coming out on your airways next week is a couple of people not me I hasten to add I call Brexit actually quite accurately even if I was wrong with everything else <laughs> said that we could we would pivot to a softer Brexit I wonder if an interesting what if is what would have happened if Boris Johnson did pivot also is he capable of making that pivot but I think it's quite a similar position to May actually where the issue we have is that Boris Johnson Johnson refused to make the tough decisions when he had the most political capital to do so. I think when it comes to to, to, to Brexit, the only reason it's not been there in the headlines throughout the entirety of the year is because we're caught in the middle of a pandemic. The, the different areas where the government has kind of like hit roadblocks were identified months and months and months ago as being things that were going to be problematic because we were asking for for the moon on a stick in effect in relation to the to the eu and we weren't necessarily looking like we were going to be able to compromise now i suspect in a in a slightly different universe where the the covid19 didn't hit we would probably have heard a lot more about these issues in the run-up and it might have definitely been able to say, you know, by probably mid part of the year that the government had failed on this uh, particular uh, resolution. I really don't understand, though, why the government didn't just extend the transition period in June. Having said that, 
I think I understand perfectly well, which I will get to in a second. For all that since 2016, actually, the government has claimed to act in the interests of Leave voters and that vaulted 52% figure, actually, a majority, even the majority of Leave voters thought that the transition period should be extended in June and the government still refused to do it. And one assumes the reason they didn't is because the ERG would cry betrayal. A lot of Boris Johnson's political capital went because of Dominic Cummings of Barnard Castle. And I can't think of a single Prime Minister who's burnt through so much political capital so quickly, apart from possibly, possibly Gordon Brown in the election that never was. But I think it would be perfectly possible for the government just to say, yeah, it's the middle of a pandemic, Obviously, it's going to take longer than we thought. We are now out of the EU. Um, but in terms of negotiating this end state and having the freedom to take back our laws and our fish, mostly the one borders, I think the government could have done that. And no one really would have cared apart from maybe 20 or 30 Tory MPs. As it is. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Because of that. We're now in a national crisis because, once again, a Conservative Prime Minister won't stand up to the hard right in their party. When you mentioned Barnard Castle and Dominic Cummings, I think that is probably the point, kind of like the main uh, point to make in regards to, 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 to Johnson's political capital is he burnt through everything in trying to keep Cummings on for you know, a pointless reason, seemingly, given Cummings is now gone. And that results effectively in him being in a position where... He's got no capital, so he can't necessarily, you know, burn that with the ERG and just kind of ignore them. But he also needs to try and, given how unpopular Dominic Cummings was with Tory MPs and and continues to be with Tory MPs, there is a very real possibility in my mind that I think an awful lot of the decision-making in terms of, oh, we're not going to extend extend the, the transition period, was a bit of, you know, some more toxic masculinity, uh, macho-ness from from Boris Johnson, because he needed to show that he was in control. Because with the whole Barnard Castle fiasco, it was quite clear that the Prime Minister was not in control of what was happening. He couldn't control his advisor. So Johnson is therefore left with a, I need something big, I need something bold, well, I'm already committed to to Brexit, so what's the difference, really, if we go forward, uh, if we stick with the date or not? It sets the tone of him being committed to Brexit. It sets the tone of him being willing to stick it, quote-unquote, to the EU, which plays nicely to the ERG, and maybe it actually does regain him a little bit of political capital. But ultimately, it's it's self-defeating, because he's now just put him, created a, a, a rod for his own back. Because of his own decision-making, he's now left with this completely arbitrary uh, series of arbitrary deadlines that he set for himself. The EU were the ones that offered up the, uh, an extension to the transition, but Johnson decided that that he didn't want to be a, a grown-up and decided he wanted to be a, an action hero. I think a lot of that is right. I think one of them is one of the most interesting things I've read on the psychology of Boris Johnson is from David Runciman, who I think reviewed a, a biography of Johnson saying that, yes, Johnson is the man who can be ideologically flexible and you know wrote the two articles one to remain and one for leave but once Johnson has decided on a position once he's decided which side of the fence he's going he's all in on that position and I think that insight is right and I think helps understand why Johnson didn't pivot to a soft Brexit the appointment of Cummings 
almost made it impossible, I think, to, to take change course from then. And I think it's also interesting what you say about toxic masculinity as well. So Sarah bought me Robert Dalek's biography of Lyndon Johnson. And there's some really interesting stuff on that about why LBJ kept America in the mire of Vietnam. And a lot of it, okay, might have been about thinking that you were doing the right thing about fighting communism, thinking that you had to, to stop the spread, thinking that there were moral reasons as he would say, for America to be there. But a lot of it actually was about not wanting to be the first US president who lost a war. Or a lot of it was about pride and about masculinity as well. But there's a journalist who claims that he had a conversation with LBJ about Vietnam, asking why we were there. And Lyndon Johnson gets out his, um, his, his organ of choice, slaps it on the table and says, that's why we're in Vietnam. And there's certainly a little bit of willy waving, I think, with, with regards to Boris Johnson and Brexit as well. And it, I think it is that that pride. Yeah, I, I feel like that focus on weakness is probably the the, the, the key term in everything you said with, with, with Johnson. You get this notion that everything, he has to look like he's um, the, the, the one that's in control. For the most part, he isn't. Um, but he, he wants to give that image. He's, he's, in many ways, he wants to look like a strong man. And you can see this with Trump and, 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 you know, Bolsonaro and all of these other kind of either actual authoritarians or wannabe authoritarians across the, across the world. They are obsessed with not looking weak in, in some form. Like Trump, classic example of, uh, example of this, when everybody was bringing up the size of his hands, they're being apparently a bit too small. Or yeah, Whenever somebody brought up the size of, his, the size of his hands being too small, he'd kind of like, you know, could talk about how, how, how massive or great his hands are. To the extent, and this isn't just a thing that's actually new. So Trump, back in the day when he was... Uh, in effect, just a New York socialite. One of the New York-based magazines went out of their way whenever they were covering him to make a quip about his small hands. And like, I don't necessarily know if this is still the case, but certainly up until very, very recently, the guy who edited that magazine would get uh, packages from Trump Basically, it was a show of pictures of uh, Trump's hands, kind of like circled in gold pen, kind of like highlighting how great and normal they were and things like that. Because any sign that you're subpar is a sign of weakness, and weakness is not to be tolerated. Um, and I think Johnson, in many ways, buys into that same kind of kind of mindset. And, and I think a lot of that probably just come, I, I suspect, from from the from Eton and kind of like the training that and and uh, and schooling he got there. It, it's slightly off point, but it's, again, mentioning David Runciman again, really interesting talking politics episode he did with James O'Brien, the LBC journalist, and mm-hmm. they were talking about the the tape that went out during 2016 where Trump basically brags about sexual assault yeah uh, apparently the the story goes that everyone thought this was terrible for the campaign trump might have to step down from the ticket trump is given an apology to to read he's reading what he would have to say and he just says i can't say this this isn't me and he doesn't any other politician i think would probably have apologized and trump didn't and on a purely political electoral level it's the right call because he didn't apologise and won. And actually, if he'd apologised, he probably wouldn't have won. 
And it's a really interesting, you're right, it is that masculine zero sum, not going to back down, you know, I am right. So we should move on to the third <laughs> resolution, which was the Conservatives to keep their voting coalition together. Like, hard to know, given no elections, we'll um, have a better idea in 2021 if we go off the polls, which we do, because we believe in those polls in podcast with a certain margin of error. Uh, actually, the Conservatives added to their voting coalition by March. They were hitting 50% of the vote. They were 25 points ahead. Now that's sometimes 40 points, sometimes just below some, and, and again, anywhere within two, three points of, of Labour, Labour leading in some polls, the Tories leading in others. But there are signs, aren't there, that those voters who shifted to the Conservatives from Labour in 2019, it's not that they've snapped back Labour, but they're definitely having second thoughts about Boris Johnson and the Conservatives. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's two court root causes of that, I think. There's the fact that Jeremy Corbyn is no longer Labour leader. An awful lot of the the red wall sort of seats. Jeremy Corbyn was not very popular uh, amongst the voters in those sorts of seats. So it, it is quite interesting when you say, oh, yeah, by March, uh, Labour, sorry, so the Conservatives were up to about 50%. Well, one of the things that happened around then was Keir Starmer actually properly became um, leader of the Labour Party. And that's and very much signalled an end to Labour being the Jeremy Corbyn party. You know, we're, we're not the same party we were before and gives permission almost um, for Labour to be heard by the sorts of voters that it lost previously now as you say that's not necessarily the case that they will necessarily come back to labor they may have just moved to a don't know position for the time being but it, it opens up that possibility of of them coming back to, uh, to 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 the red team at the same time as that though you've got the absolute level of incompetence that the government has been been displaying across multiple different facets of uh, you know, um, headline news in relation to the pandemic. Like, you can get away with almost anything in politics if you look and continue to appear competent. The minute you look incompetent, then you are done. So when you are starting to see these the shift in um, polling momentum away from the Conservatives towards Labour the failures of this government, going back to those communication strategy discussion from earlier in the episode, the failures on the communication, the failures in actually getting all of these decisions made, the failures now in relation to like what's happening in Christmas, because literally as the time of this recording, we don't know. Screw up after screw up after screw up, which just, it eventually, it just cuts through. Certainly in terms of that shift in voters, there's a, a, I think there's a couple of things. I mean, one of them is, as you say, it's the incompetence of the government. I think partly it's the Barnard Castle losing a lot of trust there. And that's, again, it's one of those issues that really cut through. Very few political issues, especially among government advisors, usually cut through with my non-political Facebook friends in the way that Barnard Castle did. And I think the other thing yeah. as well that people thought Boris Johnson was a different type of conservative. But although his leadership ratings, they weren't great, actually, even going into the election, there was thought that he wasn't like other conservatives. What Johnson was able to do is almost, he, he had that ability to portray himself as not being a typical conservative politician, even though in many ways he is, which in many ways is part of his political genius. 
Yeah, and it, it's very similar to uh, to Tony Blair in that respect, in that Blair was able to position himself as not being just another like Labour politician or just not just another Labour leader, um, because by um, and was able to reach out to a uh, a group of, of voters which at the time were not part of the um, the, the, the Labour coalition. Probably the only two leaders and prime ministers I can think of in in recent history that have been able to to, to pull something like that off. I would argue maybe Margaret, you could add Margaret Thatcher to that as well. Yeah, no, that's fair, yeah. Um, let's I, was, just... I wasn't thinking that far back. <laughs> I always think that far back. Actually, um, Edward IV as well was particularly effective. <laughs> um, so let's just whip for the Labour resolutions. So... Uh, one of them was to engage honestly and comradely about how we've lost. Now, if we discount Labour Twitter from that, which we probably should, um, let's learn the lessons of Joe Biden's win and spend less time on Twitter. We talked when we checked in on the resolutions in April about the Labour Together report. And I think there's, there is evidence in there of how the party ha- uh, uh, has learned the lessons, not just of 2019, but of 2010 and 2015. And there is a blueprint there uh, for the future. Uh, and I think uh, that Starmer, Keir Starmer started to put that into place. Um, in terms of finding a path back to electability and finding a constructive way to attack the Conservatives, I think this has been Starmer's strength this year. And I think he has played a blinder on this one. I think the, the constructive opposition, I think it'd be very easy to go and attack the government and say everything they're doing is wrong and terrible and stupid. I don't think that would have been cut through. I think that would have been seen as playing politics. Uh, And certainly I think the attacks on the Conservatives of being incompetent are cutting through. I think the flip side of that is they're not ideological positions. And I wonder if part of the reason you see Starmer's ratings dipping a little bit, certainly his approval ratings among Labour voters, they're still positive, but they're not as good as they were. I wonder if part of that is because it's not an ideological framing. There's a, so for instance, I know Andrew Fisher has said that you look at the, um, the mismanagement of PPE contracts, which we talked about on the podcast a week or two ago. And Labour said, you know, that has mainly framed it in terms of a competence issue. Andrew Fisher is suggesting that you should frame it in terms of corruption, uh, which might be more ideological framing. You could attack more in outsourcing generally. I think what Starmer's done, I think he's really correct in this is, as you look at the, the, the polling and the feedback from 2019, is that voters generally don't choose who they vote for based on policy. They do it based on leadership and based on trust. And what Starmer, I think, has done a very good job of is changing the, mu- the mood music around the party. And I think it's also fair to say, I'm not surprised that that goes against the growth of a lot of Labour members, many of whom join the party uh, for ideological, obviously they join the party for ideological reasons, but it's more about the policy. If you're Labour members, you get more excited about the policy agenda you want to put in place and think of all the exciting things that you can do in government, which is fantastic. Whereas actually, I think a lot of voters don't look at retail politics in those terms. It's more about what do I think about this person? Do I trust this party to enact this agenda? I mean, that's the key strategic issue for the party, I think, is how you keep that coalition together I think the pivot that Starmer does in 2021, and there's been briefings that he would, um, he's going to make more of an expansive policy agenda. I think it'll be interesting to see how he does that. Starmer's had a very good year. I think it, really, you're you're right to point out that that pivot um, for 
for, I suppose it was just the policy pivot, really, and demonstrating that, you know, his promises of I'm the unifying candidate, the policies we were, do, we were looking to enact were popular. It was just that the problem was the, uh, the, the, the vision of us as being incompetent or the vision of us as being not capable of delivering on those, prom- on, on those policies. That's what we need to focus on. That's, that's what he ran on as a, as a candidate. And if he's able to do that, then he's going to be in a very strong position. The question is just, when do you start to do it? Next year, I imagine we'll probably start to see the the framework of it kind of being brought into place, just because we should, <laughs> touch wood, um, start having local elections, mayoral elections, all of those sorts of things happening again. So the, the talk is that Starmer will pivot to talking about the importance of, of place and and people's sort of identity with their community and family there's lots of people that say well actually labor the jeremy corbyn talks about this stuff as well and in a sense they're right you know things like the our town political broadcast are actually a very good example of that the problem was not that we didn't talk about it the problem is again we we weren't necessarily trusted or believed which again is why the mood mood music is so important in terms of the wider policy agenda, I don't think there is a single policy change, actually, that Starmer has said to the Corbyn agenda. I can't think of any. What I find interesting, more interesting, is at the start of the year, I picked Rebecca Long-Bailey as one of my movers and shakers, thinking that it would be Long-Bailey as a figurehead in a Starmer shadow cabinet, carrying on that agenda and the sort of Green New Deal that she was talking about on, as a shadow minister under Corbyn. And that didn't happen. I mean, she's not in the shadow cabinet now. She was in education, um, which was a high profile job, but again, wasn't part of the driving room of that economic agenda. I think it's fair to say. And instead, who you had at shadow business, actually, is Ed Miliband. And actually, if one thinks about the fact that 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 2017 manifesto, which has almost become a bit of a holy writ, was essentially a lot of radical Ed Miliband stuff. If you look at the appointment of people like Annalise Dodds, Nick Thomas-Simmons, Ed Miliband coming back into business where he has had that chance to talk about the green policy in that way, that I think actually there is that space for that definitely far to the left of New Labour. And I think it's really interesting when you see people like Alex Nunn's, you know, when, when Boris Johnson was talking about the Green Industrial Revolution and Alex Nunns were saying, can you believe that Keir Starmer managed to get himself outflanked on green issues by Boris Johnson? And you just think, I don't think he has, though. It's almost they pay so much attention to what is being said and not enough attention to what is being done and the, yeah, and, and the motives, I think, behind it. Especially when it comes to like Labour Twitter, a section of a very online people who are engaged with the absolute minuscule granular detail of everything political, which... Is, is it's fine. There's nothing inherently wrong with 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 with, with being like that or doing that, um, but it does skew your your vision to to a certain thing. So yeah, absolutely. Boris Johnson gave a speech about the uh, green industrial revolution. That is a sensible bit of policy discussion on their end. I won't say it's actually full on policy because let's be honest, until they actually bring out some meaningful money for it, um, it doesn't necessarily come to much. But the reality is Starmer isn't being outflanked on that issue simply because the government actually isn't doing anything majorly on that. And if they are, you can still outflank them again by, by doing more. 
because at the end of the day, the Conservatives are always going to be a lot more constrained by prospects of spending money in relation to deficits and uh, because they're obsessed with this notion of the uh, economy being like a household budget, which it isn't. Um, so you are left with this odd situation where certain parts of the Labour Party are critiquing things that don't necessarily matter yet. Like, it takes minimum six months six months before you actually settle into a new job. You've then, and that's just for a regular job. If you're doing something like leader of the opposition, honestly, you're probably looking at like a year, um, unless you're talking about that mood music, which, you, which, which you've alluded to a couple of times, which Starmer's been very good uh, at setting that tone um, so that people can go, okay, this is, what's the best way I can describe it? This is the uh, this is the, um, the, the 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 melody to the tune, but what's about to come come in the future is the backing vocals and the diff- and the rest of the orchestration for it. Um, people know what the general gist is, but over time it expands and becomes a full on song. That's a terrible analogy. <laughs> so what I'm hearing is, it's all about the bass. And on that note. We have a quiz next week, and then Steve and I are going to record again in January. Uh, having seen though Steve's reaction to that, I don't know if we're even going to be recording in January. We'll have to see. Right, we are going to stop recording there, partly because we've talked for a while, partly because Steve and I are going to investigate whether or not we can meet our families at Christmas. In the meantime, if you can't see your family at Christmas and instead want to catch up on some podcasts we've put out for our Patri- uh, for our champagners, you could support us on Patreon, couldn't you, Steve? You could indeed. You could head over to uh, patreon.com slash not enough champagne where you can uh, fling us a couple of quid every month to gain access to uh, unique podcasts um, that go out solely to our backers and champagners on there, um, as well as early access to some blogs and things when we when we uh, produce them as well. Um, so, yeah, head over, um, take a look, and uh, hopefully you'll, uh, you'll join our little community, and uh, we uh, will look forward to seeing you there. Our website is notenoughchampagne.com. Facebook, our Facebook page is not is facebook.com forward slash not enough champagne. Dave Depper composed our theme tune. James Cram designed our logo. You can follow him on Twitter at James Cram. My Twitter handle is at paperbackrioter. Uh, mine's at acoustic radical. Have a lovely Christmas. Mm-hmm.